And just over the years, I've, I've learned a few things about Ron. Um, one, I've learned that, that Ron is just someone who is hungry for the truth. Uh, Ron came from a, a background that, uh, just all to say, is theologically unorthodox. And, and just through God's grace, the Lord led him through the Word to see that what he had been raised to believe and to teach was not true. And, and through the Word, he, he saw what the truth was and, and just realized, well, if this is what God says, that's what I want to preach and teach and lead by. And, and so I, I just was impressed from the very beginning that Ron's desire to know and preach the truth of God's Word. If, if, if God's Word says it, that's what he wants to communicate, and, and that's how he leads. And I've also just learned that Ron has a heart for uh, the means of grace, has a heart for the church, has a heart for God's plan, that, that he trusts that God uses the word and prayer and the gospel to do his work. And and so we have a lot of unity uh, with that as well. And so, uh, Ron, I'm just going to pray one more time for uh, our time in the word today, and then you can come preach this morning. Father, we thank you for the time of worship that we've been able to have so far, and we pray as we continue to worship you by hearing your word that you would open our hearts up. Lord, we need you to speak to us in a, a powerful and transformative way. We don't just need instruction, but we need power to live it out. We need change. We need your spirit to impress on us the realities of who Jesus is and what he has done and how glorious these things are so that we leave here not only are hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so we pray for your spirit to be active among us right now. Uh, fill Ron with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit as we listen. Let your word shape us and mature us, correct us, edify us. And Lord, help us to live it out uh, this week in our fellowship and in our discipleship and in our mission to this world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. The Lord is good. He is. It's good to see all of you all this morning. Good to be worshiping with the Redeemer family and the Living Church family. Phil gave me a call a couple of weeks ago and asked if um, we could join you all on the fourth Sunday of this month. And, and I acquiesced. I gave in. I've I, I preached at Anderson Bible Church a couple of times, and in fact, I'll be preaching there the fourth Sunday in August, And uh, but I haven't preached here before, so I'm a little nervous, um, but the Lord gives grace, and it is Him who empowers us to do His will. It is God's will that we be here this morning, so uh, I preached through First Peter the end of last year uh, up until a about a month or so ago, and um, I was talking with Phil about a passage that I wanted to look at, and uh, he suggested First uh, Peter, the second chapter, verses 9 through, I think, 13, 9 through 12, so that is going to be our principal text this morning. I preached this text back in January of this year, but I really like this passage and what the Lord is saying to us uh, through this. So let's turn to 1 Peter, the second chapter, as it is up here on the screen. 
But instead of diving right into verse nine, I want to give a good context of this. So I want to go back to uh, verse four of first Peter two. Um, because verse nine begins with a but. So that but is there for a, a reason. It presents a contrast. So looking at verse four. Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone. And of course, the him is Christ rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient or those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, those being the those who do not believe, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may, pro that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once who were once rather not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When I was growing up as a kid, I wasn't a good basketball player at all. And, you know, we were going up, we played pickup ball. You always had two captains and they would choose people for their team. And uh, if you had an odd number of kids ready to play, let's say if you had seven kids ready to play basketball, uh, six would be chosen and one would be left out. I was usually the kid who wasn't chosen and I had to get what we call next. That means whatever team lost, I had a chance to pick my team from those three players. And what that uh, illustrated to me was that in man's eyes, we choose people based on uh, their perceived ability, uh, their perceived talents. You know, think about a, a sports draft, NFL draft. Teams draft players based on their talent, their skill set, you know, their performance on the field. Uh, we do that as as people. We we choose people. We Befriend people based on certain qualities, certain tangibles and intangibles that uh, we favor. But the great thing about God is that God's choosing is not based on human externals. God chooses despite the person. We are prejudicial in our choosing. We are partial in our choosing, whether we want to admit it or not. But God himself does not base his choosing of his people based on 
externals based on a person's uh, potential kingdom impact, uh, based on how well a, a person can speak or, or how articulate they are or how well dressed they are or, or what community they come from. God's choosing is not because of that. So as we look at this text this morning, my, my topic is the chosen people of God. And we read the context from verses four uh, through eight. Those who believe versus those who disbelieve, those who are unbelievers. And Peter here is not speaking to those who have rejected Christ. He is not speaking. This is not a universal uh, atonement message. This message is to the chosen people of God, God's elect. And, and, and as I've said before, at, at, at our church in particular, um, everyone is not born a child of God. Uh, we're not a child of God by virtue of just being born. We're not God's people just uh, by coming through that birth canal. God has a chosen people of his. Those who believe because Peter contrasted. To those who believe he is precious, but but to those who are disobedient. They rejected this stone who is Jesus Christ. So he says, but you. Who are the you? If you go back to the very first chapter and the first verse. Peter addresses his audience. The you, you know, when you're reading the Bible, and, and, and I didn't know this, uh, as Phil said, I came from a, a theologically unorthodox uh, background. And when I read the Bible, I wasn't taught, you know, what the you means. You have to consider the audience that the writer is addressing. So when Peter says you, he's not talking about every single person that has breath. We look at the beginning of this letter. And this is the New King James Version that I'm reading from. He says to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia elect. So Peter here is speaking to God's people. He's speaking to the elect. He's speaking to those who are sojourners. They're pilgrims. They're exiles. They're they're a suffering church scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he's writing to encourage those suffering Pilgrims, he's reminding them of their state in this world that this earth is not their permanent home. And those pilgrims are God's elect. They are chosen out of the world. So we're looking at our text this morning. Peter says, you. Are. A chosen generation, he says, you and not only does he say you, but he says that they are. R is a, I'm an English teacher, so, you know, you have the forms of being. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, and being. <laughs> R means it is a present reality. It is not a future eschatological reality. No, you are at this point. The point, the moment that God chose you, the moment that God called you with his effectual call, you became one of his chosen. It is not a something that we have to look forward to. It is present. So he's reminding these exiles that right now you are. 
You are. If you're one of God's chosen, you are his chosen. You you will not be. You already are. and You always will be. Because we are kept by the power of God, as Peter reminds us in the first chapter of this book. So I want to look at two principles this morning. Our corporate identity. And our corporate call. Actually, three in our corporate condition. So what is our corporate identity? We're chosen. And there are four privileges that we have as believers. One, we are a chosen people. Some translations say a chosen race. We are chosen. We're chosen by God. We don't choose to be part of God's family. God chooses us. All true Christians are a chosen generation. We make one family. We're chosen from this common world. We are of another spirit. We are of another practice. We are sanctified by his spirit. We are called out from this world. We are a chosen people, a chosen generation. That is our corporate identity. We we have to remind ourselves as believers that we are the chosen people of God. We are chosen out of this world. We no longer belong to the world. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. God said of Israel in Isaiah 43 and 21, he says, this people I have formed for myself. When God chose Israel, he chose them for himself. And when he chose those of us who are saved, he chose us also for himself. That is what makes us a chosen generation, a chosen race of people. It is a great privilege to be chosen. You know why? Because it wasn't up to us. We did nothing special for God to choose us. You know, I came from a uh, Arminian uh, background where, you know, you, you made decisions to follow Christ. You, you, you woke up one day and you decided this is the day I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. That is so arrogant. Because as I begin to look at it, if you chose, then you're responsible to keep yourself. And we don't have the power to do that. At all. We're chosen by God. Isn't that something praiseworthy? I think we take it for granted sometimes. Sometimes our pride tells us that there was something that God saw in me. 
something special. So, that, there was something special about me that, that made God want to choose me. You know, I grew up in the Christian house. Perhaps I went to church, you know, went to Sunday school, went to vacation Bible school. I was always good in school. That wasn't me. I'm just saying that's <laughs> so some people think, you know, I, I did all these things. I, I ate all my food. I cleaned my plate. I'm special. I'm worthy of God's choosing. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were strangers to the covenant. We were strangers. But God. But God. Peter says, but you are. <laughs> but God. God chose us. So we are a chosen generation. And then next he says, we are a royal priesthood. We are royal in our relation to God and Christ. And in our power with God. It describes the people of God, those who have placed their trust in Christ. When God delivered Israel in the Exodus narrative, he described them as a nation chosen by God to serve as a priesthood. And this language is now applied to all true believers in Jesus Christ. Because we're connected to Christ, who is our cornerstone. All believers are set apart as ministers of the new covenant. All of us are priests. Not just the pastor. Not just your elders. Or not the deacons. All of us. If you're chosen by God, you are in the priesthood of believers. You know, when I was uh, in church growing up, you know, it was always taught if you need prayer, go to the pastor. Well, what if the pastor's busy? What if the pastor's on vacation? You know, you, you go to the man of God. You go find a very godly person, a godly woman, God. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I'm not, I'm not bemoaning that. But the point I'm making is, as a chosen person of God, I have the same privilege to go before Christ, to go before his throne, because guess what? I am his child. I am his chosen. That is a great privilege. I can go before God anytime. I can go before my faithful high priest. Who is in the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. I can go before him anytime. I don't have to wait until Sunday morning. I don't have to wait until midweek service. I don't have to wait until I run into a, quote, godly, a person who's, quote, more godly than me. No, I can go before God myself because I am also a priest. So we are a royal priesthood. We are royalty as believers. And who made us that? God did. God chose us for this. 
And then he says we are a holy nation. A called out nation. A separate nation. God, when he chose us, friends, he called us out of this world. He called us out. He separated us. Now, I came out of um, a, I guess you call it a sect of Christianity called uh, holiness churches. Pentecostal oneness, Pentecostal Jesus only, uh, you know, women wearing dresses, men couldn't have facial hair, you know, a very legalistic uh, church denomination, you know, churches. Um, thank you. We were taught that in order to be holy, you couldn't participate in things that the world does. So when our ladies went to the beach, uh, you know, they couldn't wear bikinis. They had to wear skirts to the beach, you know, couldn't go out in the water, I guess, couldn't show their skin off to tempt men, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, going to amusement parks was frowned upon. Going to the ball game was frowned upon. But they told us that that's what holiness looked like. You, you have to separate yourself from those worldly things, those, those worldly pursuits, those worldly activities. They put a law where there was no law. That's what legalism does. But that's not necessarily what God means by a holy nation. We are a called out people. When God saved us and chose us, he called us out from the world. Not to stay away from the world. We're going to get into that in our uh, uh, latter part of this passage. But he called us out of the world. We are separate from the world. We are we are not to be tainted and contaminated by the world. By the world's philosophies, by the world's ideologies. By the world's false truth. We are called out from that by God. And looking at the word nation. The word nation is singular. We are not holy nations. We are a holy nation. Why do I emphasize that? The word nation comes from the Greek word ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnic from, or ethnicity. We are a community of people held together by the same laws, the same customs, and mutual interests. Uh, D.M. and Hebert said that in his commentary. That's, that's what this means by a holy nation. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the same laws, which is God's law. We have the same customs and practice, whatever God prescribes in Scripture. And we have mutual Interest. The interest is glorifying God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is our mutual interest as a holy nation. Where we go wrong is when we 
try to acquiesce to cultural laws, cultural customs, and cultural interests, and try to synergize them with the mission of the church. And what happens? The mission of the church becomes perverted. We begin to adapt cultural terms. And one thing about cultural terms is when you adapt the terms, you have to adapt their definitions. When you forsake biblical language, biblical laws, biblical customs, biblical interests, when you forsake that and you acquiesce, you give in. This is Peter was telling these persecuted Christians. Who were living. In Rome. And scattered throughout the Roman Empire. We adapt their customs, those pagans. It creeps into the church. And the church begins to lose her purpose. We come from many ethnicities. We come from many socioeconomic backgrounds. But we form one nation. A whole new corporate identity distinguished from the world. The world loves to separate by categories. So that's why you hear terms like the black church, white evangelicals, the black Christian experience, the the Hispanic Christian experience. You hear all these worldly cultural terms and we have people in the church who use these same categories to distinguish people in the church. When we acquiesce, when we give in to the culture's laws, the culture's customs. This is what happens. We forget that we are a holy nation. We are called apart from that. We don't use their language. We don't use their terms. We don't use their definitions. We have our own terms. We have our own definitions. We have our own customs and they are found in God's holy word. When we fail to do that, church, we we lose our identity as a holy nation. We lose it. To the point where you can't see where the church is and the world begins. And that is happening, sadly, in particularly here in the United States. We are holy. We are separate. What did Paul say in Titus 2 and 14? He says, Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. God called us to purify us for himself, not for the world. We're his own special people. We're not people of the world. The world systems, the world's ideologies are all rubbish. They can't hold a light to God's truth. 
No matter what emotional appeals or emotional pleas the world makes, it is still not God's truth. And as a holy nation, may God give us the discernment to see that this world is not our home, that we don't belong to it. We don't. Yes, we enjoy it. God has given us all things to richly enjoy. He gave us this creation to steward it well and to enjoy it. Yes, he did. But our affections, our emotions, our desires cannot be for a permanent place here. As a holy nation, we are called out from that. And then he says we are his own special people. I know the King James says a peculiar people. We are God's own special people. We are God's own possession. Again, we belong to God. Christ, his work reconciled us to the father. We're reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are God's own possession. We belong to God and God alone. We don't belong to the world. The world doesn't own us. You know what? They can take away everything. But they can't take away the fact that we're God's own possession. Yes, they can tell us we can't preach about certain things. But they can't take away the fact that we're still God's own possession. We belong to God. And, you know, when I was a younger Christian, I didn't. I didn't think in these terms. First thing I thought was that I could lose my salvation. Because when I sinned, I thought I lost it and I had to go back to church and confess my sins to our pastor and be restored. So I, I was I was, you know taught to think that, man, when you sinned, you just blew it right then. I didn't I didn't know about being justified. Being declared righteous, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, I I wasn't taught those things. I wasn't I wasn't taught theology and doctrine. In fact, theology and doctrine were frowned upon. All you needed was Jesus. (laughs) Just Jesus. That's all you need. You don't need all that doctrine and theology. All you need is Jesus. And that was actually a doctrine itself. It was a false doctrine. But I wasn't taught that I'm God's possession. That we are a distinct people that God formed for himself. We're peculiar. We're peculiar. And, you know, when I think about the word peculiar, it it means strange and odd. But that word has been misinterpreted by 
a certain group of uh, people because the word peculiar also means queer. That is a synonym of that word. And so a certain group of uh, people have used that verse to say that you can be a L, a G, a B, a T, and a Q Christian because of the word peculiar and what it means. But that is a gross misinterpretation of this passage. Because that's not what he means. Even the word, and see this, this is an aside right quick, but words have been defined by, redefined by our culture. Words that used to mean one thing don't mean that anymore. You know, and, and, and I was talking to my students about this earlier this year with pronouns. You know, plural, you have plural pronouns and you have singular pronouns. And you have people trying to literally define, redefine the English language by making plural pronouns have a singular meaning. By referring to a person as they or them instead of he or she. What happens, friend, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. When we acquiesce to cultural laws, cultural customs, and try to synergize them with the church, it all falls apart. This is what makes us a peculiar people. This is what makes us a people of God's own possession. The church was purchased with a price. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and 20. And what was that price? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. We are purchased by Christ. That means that we belong to Christ. He owns the rights to us. He has the deed and the title to our life. And whoever owns the house governs the house. We are governed by Christ. We are his possession. He owns us. We are his slaves. We are his bond servants. A holy nation, his own special people. But it doesn't stop there. We praise God that we are chosen. We praise God that we are royal. We praise God that we are holy. We praise God that we are his own special people. But why did God do that? The next principle is we have a corporate call. And he says it here. That you may proclaim the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his Marvelous light. Why did God choose us to proclaim? He didn't choose us so that we can revel in being chosen. Our purpose is God's chosen is not to bask in the glory of being chosen. It is not to bask in the glory of being God's elect. It is not to bask in the glory of being called out of the world. We praise God for those things, but it doesn't stop at being chosen. He chose us out to proclaim, to preach 
the gospel. To go to all the world as Christ commanded. And make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. To proclaim. God's purpose for saving us, friends, was to reveal himself to others through us. God's purpose for saving us is to reveal himself to others through us. He didn't save us just to save us. He didn't save us just so we could get out of get a uh, get out of hell free pass. He saved us to do what? Peter says that you may proclaim. That you may yell from the mountaintops that Jesus saves. That God is holy. That God is calling you to himself to repent and believe the gospel. To proclaim the praises, the the excellencies of Christ, the glorious attributes of God, which are all of them. Yes, God is loving. God is merciful. God is just. God is holy. God is transcendent. He is other. He is the great I am. He is eternal. He's wonderful. He's our God and Savior. He is our Lord. And we are to proclaim all of that and more to those who are lost. Because we were once lost. And someone proclaimed Christ to us. I know I can say that for myself. If my second cousin had not witnessed Christ to me when I was 19 years old and miserable and didn't know why, I just couldn't shake it. She said, Flip, you lost. Flip was my Tuskegee nickname. Um, you lost. You're not saved. She just came out and told me. You in sin. She just told me. You're lost. You're not saved. You're in sin. That's why you're miserable. You're rejecting God. I remember this clear as day. I'm lost. I'm in sin. I'm unsaved. She didn't say, you're a good person. You're good. You just need uh, A, B, and C. No, she says, you're not saved. You're in sin. You're living in sin. She witnessed Christ to me. She proclaimed the excellencies of God, that God is forgiving. Come to him. Repent. She invited me to church. With her and I, I went for a few Sundays and, and, and the Lord, uh, you know, saved me. 
it was his doing. But the point I'm making is that she proclaimed the praises of God to me. She proclaimed the gospel to me that I am a sinner, that I am lost, that if I die that night, I would be eternally separated from God. I would be in hell. She didn't mince words. And I praise the Lord for that. And the Lord worked, you know, through his spirit into my heart, through that word and brought me to salvation. So we are we're chosen out, friends, to proclaim the praises. Of who? God, he says, the praises of him. We're not to proclaim our own. We're not to praise ourselves. We are to declare the praises of him, not the praises of our own experience, but the one who saved us, the one who chose us, the one who called us. We are to proclaim the praises of God. Because we have no room to boast. We have no room to boast. We have no room to boast. And it is God who did what? Who called us out of darkness, spiritual darkness, sin, rebellion, where the unsaved dwell and continually dwell and wallow in. He called us out of spiritual darkness. And when I think about darkness, I always think about the passage in John, the third chapter, where Jesus uh, spoke of those who are condemned. He says in John 3 and 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family members, they're in darkness. There are those who are in the light. Those are the true Christians. And there are those who are in darkness, those who are unregenerate, the unbelievers. Friends, I don't care how it looks on the outside. They can have the boat on the lake. They can have the house on the lake. They can go to the beach every week. They can go on bucket list trips. But they're still in darkness. And because they're in darkness, they're trying to do all these things to assuage their guilty conscience that they cannot shake. They can't get rid of. They do all these things. They spend all this money. They seek all this pleasure. Because they're in darkness. And the more they do it, the more dark it gets for them. Yes, they're fun to be around. They're the life of the party. But they are in darkness. They're masking their darkness. It is so deep and dark. Do you remember how it was before you came to Christ? How dark it was for you? 
It doesn't mean you have to be out there on drugs and, and, and all those things. But just the spiritual, the, the inner darkness, the inner emptiness that you feel as an unbeliever. That is the darkness that every unbeliever feels. And they have to put on their best face to mask it. We have to proclaim to them that God can bring you out of that darkness, that God is that light that you're looking for. It is not the vacations. It is not the beach house. It is not the house on the lake with the big camper and the boat. It is not fulfilling your bucket list. It is. Repenting, bowing the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is your way out of darkness. And friends, we have to proclaim that to those who are lost because we knew what it was like to be lost. We knew what it was like to be in darkness. I remember those days. It was over 30 years ago, but I still remember how it was to be in spiritual darkness and and, and doing, trying to do all this fun stuff when all I was doing was masking the pain of spiritual darkness. And that's what every single unbeliever is doing. But as chosen people, we proclaim the virtues, the excellencies of this great God who brought us out of darkness and can bring them out of darkness that is our corporate call. And then lastly, we have our corporate condition. Our past and present status. Verse 10 says, we were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Our corporate condition was that we had a past status, but now we have a present status. We were once not, but now we are. First, what were we not? First, we were not a people. We were without a king. And Peter here harkens back to Hosea 2 and 23, where God said, then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people and they shall say you are my God. He was speaking of Gentiles. Gentiles were not God's people. We were pagans. Praise the Lord. We were pagans. We were lost. We were not Jews. We were not the covenant people of God. But what did God do? He made us who were not his people, who were strangers 
to the covenant of Israel. We were strangers. We were pagans. He took us who were not people and made us a people. Once means here before Christ. We had no existence as a community. We had no existence as a community of people at all. We were of no use to God and his program. No use. But God made us his people. Can we praise the Lord for that? We're now part of God's plan. We're part of God's redemptive work. But it was all because of God. It wasn't because of anything we did. And not only were we not a people, but are now a people, but also we had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained or we have received it. These are those in scripture who cried out to mercy from God and God did not turn away. In his sovereignty, God didn't turn us away. He had mercy. It is totally his mercy. He took pity on them and gave them what they did not deserve. That's what he did for us. God gave us who were not his people what we did not deserve. We did not deserve God's mercy. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. It is God's prerogative to be merciful upon whomever he deems. And for us as Gentiles, non-Jews, guess what? He had mercy on us when before he did not have mercy. So this is our corporate condition. All of us are part of that story. Amen. So just as a couple of applications here, two things I want us to think about as we leave. In a world confused with an identity crisis, we have to proclaim the excellencies of God where there is no confusion. We have a world that is confused by identity. You watch the news. You see it. The world is suffering from an identity crisis. We have identity politics in every part of our culture and unfortunately is trickling into the church. The world is longing for an identity. Those who are unsaved, they're they're longing to belong to something, but they don't know what. But guess who has the answer? We do. They're crying out to belong. They have an identity crisis. 
what they're they don't know what they're longing for. But what they're longing for is to belong to God, to be right with God. But how can one be reconciled to God only through his son, Jesus Christ? That is the only way they can be right with God, not by doing good, not through altruistic efforts, not from being a good person. But their reconciliation only comes through Jesus Christ. That is how they take on their God ordained identity of being his chosen people. And only God can do that. But we have to proclaim that to them. This is where your true identity is. You were created to worship God and to enjoy him forever, not to worship yourself. The world is in love with itself. Because it's the world. When you don't worship God, you're not worshiping nothing. You can't worship nothing. When you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. You're your own God. You get to change who you are. And demand that other people celebrate it. But we have a better message for the world. You were created not just for a purpose. Your purpose is to worship God, the one true God. The God who has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That is where your identity is supposed to rest. And number two. For us in a world. That is boldly living out their sin and rebellion against God. We are to boldly live as God's special people. And not be ashamed. What did Paul say? I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, we cannot be ashamed and afraid of that message. And we can't be afraid to live it out in this world. The world has always celebrated sin and rebellion because that's what the world does. The world is going to world. But as believers, we must live as believers. <laughs> If the world is going to world, then believers are going to believe we're going to live as such. We're going to live as chosen people of God. And be unashamed in doing that. No matter what context we're in. You know, I know Phil can tell you he and I worked at uh, UPS together for, for a little bit. And, you know, that could be a very interesting work environment. But as Christians, even in places like that, we still lived the way that we worked, the language that we use or didn't use. Express our corporate identity. As chosen people of God. And people take note of that. 
So we don't just live it, we proclaim it. We don't just proclaim it, but we also live it. We have to do both. Amen. Let us pray.